Dorothea Helena Gray was born January 9, 1929, in Redlands, California, a city located in San Bernardino County. Her parents were Trudy Mae Yates and Jesse James Gray, both of whom were alcoholics, and both of them were extremely abusive to her, as Dorothea was often left to fend for herself and often left hungry. They earned a menial living as cotton pickers up until the time her father died when she was four of tuberculosis. And then, only two years after that, her mother died in a motorcycle accident. After which, she was sent to live in an orphanage, where she stayed until some relatives from the city of Fresno, California, brought her to live with them. However, when she got older, this would not be the story she would tell of her childhood. She told anyone who asked that she was born and raised with a number of siblings in Mexico. In 1945, when Dorothea was only 16 years old, she got married for the first time to a World War II soldier, Fred McFowl. He had just come back to California after his deployment in the Pacific Theater of the War. Dorothea actually gave birth to two children, one in 1946 and one in 1948, both girls, but she did not keep them. She put one of them up for adoption, and the other was sent to be raised by relatives that she had in Sacramento. Shortly after giving birth in 1948, she became pregnant for a third time, but this pregnancy was lost due to a miscarriage. Later on that same year, her husband decided that he no longer wanted to be in this relationship with Dorothea any longer, and he left. But again, just like her childhood and upbringing, Dorothea would make up a different story to explain away the embarrassment and humiliation she had felt having been left by her husband. She told people that her first husband suffered a massive heart attack just days after they were married, a story likely to gain sympathy from others, I'm sure. Following her divorce from her first husband, Dorothea found herself in financial dire straits, as she had no real way of being able to support herself. So she turned to writing forged checks and cashing them. But that didn't last long. She was caught and arrested for the forgery. She would go on to be sentenced to a year in jail. However, she was paroled after only serving half her sentence. Shortly after being paroled, she quickly became involved with a man whom she did not know very well at all. Dorothea ended up becoming pregnant again and giving birth to another girl. But again, she gave that child up for adoption as well. In 1952, Dorothea married again, this time to a Swedish man named Axel Johansson. This marriage would last 14 years, but it was an extremely violent and abusive one, finally ending in a divorce in 1966. And during this marriage, Dorothea was not staying out of legal trouble. In 1960, she was arrested for owning and operating a brothel. For that, she was convicted and sentenced to three months in the Sacramento County Jail. In short order, Dorothea found herself in trouble again when she was arrested for vagrancy, a charge that landed her another three months in the county jail. From that point forward, in the life and times of Dorothea Puente, she would turn being a criminal into a career for good. And as time wore on, her crimes escalated, becoming more and more serious. When she was able to find work as a nurse's aide, she found herself being in charge of the care of the elderly and the disabled, not to mention vulnerable individuals, and she would be doing so in the privacy of their homes, 
she would eventually go on to become a boarding house manager. In the beginning of this newfound career, Dorothea's criminal behavior seemed to subside a bit. She wasn't getting in as much trouble as she had been prior to finding this gainful employment. But, as you know, sometimes people really don't change all that much. Dorothea had a long history of petty criminal behavior, and before long, she started down that path again. But this time, her crimes would hardly be petty. After Dorothea and Axel Johansson divorced in 1966, Dorothea met and married a man named Roberto Puente in Mexico City, Mexico. She was 37 and he was 18 years old. And with an age difference like that, it would seem likely to be doomed from the beginning. I mean, not always, but in Dorothea's case, yeah, it didn't go well. Roberto was a serial cheater, and after only two years of marriage, the couple divorced. However, just before the end of their marriage, Dorothea came to be in charge of a three-story, 16-bedroom care facility in Sacramento. The home provided room and board for some of the homeless people in the area. Neighbors began noticing some strange things going on at the care facility. Something just didn't seem right when they began noticing a homeless man they had only known by the name of Chief doing some strange work around the house. They knew him to be an alcoholic, so they found him toiling around the property to be somewhat concerning. Dorothea explained that she had hired him as a handyman for the facility. One of the things that she tasked him with was to excavate the basement of the home and remove wheelbarrows full of dirt and garbage from beneath the house. Then she had some concrete poured in there, covering the floor of the basement. Chief also demolished a garage that had been in the backyard of the home and poured a concrete foundation back there as well, where the garage went and stood. And then, suddenly, no one ever saw Chief again. One day, he was just inexplicably gone. In 1976, Dorothea wed for a fourth time to a man named Pedro Montalvo. He was an alcoholic and he was very physically abusive to Dorothea. And this marriage only lasted a matter of months. After the end of this short marriage, Dorothea found herself spending time in several local bars. By then, she was 47 years old and what she was doing was targeting older gentlemen, ones who were single or widowed, receiving benefits such as social security or pensions. She would be invited to their homes and she would look for checkbooks or the actual pension checks, forge these checks to herself and cash them. Of course, Dorothea would be caught. She was charged and convicted of 34 counts of treasury fraud, but surprisingly, Despite the large number of charges and a history of criminal behavior and fraud, she was only sentenced to probation. In 1981, Dorothea began renting out space in another Sacramento area boarding home. Some of the tenants disliked her, complaining that she wouldn't allow them to have their mail, which is how they received their monthly benefits checks. But others liked her, pointing out that she took care of the tenants really well, including preparing regularly homemade meals for everyone. What she was doing was stealing the benefits checks of all of her tenants, netting her upwards of $5,000 a month. And soon, likely because of the complaints about not being able to get their money, Dorothea came to the conclusion that 
the only way she was going to be able to continue on with her benefits check scheme was to silent the recipients. It wasn't long before she began renting out the space in that Sacramento boarding home. Tenants started dying. In April of 1982, Ruth Monroe, a 61-year-old business partner and friend of Dorothea's, became roommates with her. But the arrangement didn't last long as Ruth died as a result of an overdose of codeine and acetaminophen. When Dorothea was questioned about her friend's state of mind, she told authorities that Ruth's husband was terminally ill and this caused Ruth a great deal of stress and depression. Police had no reason to not believe Dorothea's story, so Ruth's death was ruled a suicide by intentional overdose. It was only a few weeks later that the police were back at Dorothea's home after 74-year-old retiree Malcolm McKenzie accused her of drugging him and then robbing him. She was arrested and faced multiple charges of theft. On August 18, 1982, Dorothea was convicted and sentenced to five years in prison. But being locked up was not going to stop the now 53-year-old Dorothea from her scheming. From prison, she began writing to Everson Gilmouth, a retired 77-year-old man who resided in Oregon. He enjoyed this pen pal relationship with Dorothea, but you know and I know that there were some ulterior motives on her part, likely planning her next scheme when she would be released from prison. And that's exactly what happened. Dorothea only served three years of her five-year sentence, and when she got out in 1985, Everson was right there waiting for her to pick her up in his 1980 red Ford pickup truck. He had obviously developed romantic feelings for her during the time that they corresponded. The couple were soon in a relationship, even getting to the point that they began making plans to wed. They took up residence at an upstairs apartment, again in Dorothea's old stomping grounds, Sacramento, and the couple opened up a joint bank account together. All seemed to be going well for Dorothea. So by the end of 1985, Dorothea commissioned the assistance of handyman Ismael Flores. She had a few things around the apartment she wanted redone. She had him first install some wood paneling inside the apartment. In return for his work plus $800, she offered him a 1980 red Ford pickup truck that was in really good condition. Of course, it was an offer Ismail would not turn down. She explained to him that the truck belonged to an old boyfriend who had moved to Los Angeles and she had no use for it. Strange, isn't it? Wasn't that Everson's truck that he had picked her up in when she got out of prison? When did the old man go to Los Angeles? Why would he go without his truck? Why would he go without Dorothea? And why was she giving it away for practically nothing? If all of this sounds a little fishy to you, you wouldn't be wrong. It is fishy. So next, Dorothea had a very specific request of her handyman Ismail. She needed him to build a box for her, and she was quite specific about the dimensions of the box too. Six feet by three feet by two feet. What kind of box does that sound like to you? If you thought coffin, I thought the exact same thing. Well, 
Dorothea told Ismail that she wanted the box to store books and other stuff. When he finished the box, she certainly filled the box with stuff and she nailed it shut. She called upon Ismail again to help her transport the box to a storage facility. As always, Ismail agreed to help her and so they loaded the box, which was pretty heavy, into his newly acquired red truck and the two of them headed to the storage facility. But suddenly, Dorothea had a change of plans. She decided that she did not want to take her box of stuff to storage. She told him to pull over while they were on the Garden Highway in Sutter County. Instead of taking her box to storage, she said she wanted to dump it on a riverbank that she told Ismail was a sort of unofficial place for people to dump their household rubbish. She told him the stuff in the box was just junk and really not worth hanging on to. It wasn't worth all the trouble to begin with. So they dumped the box. Two months later, a man who'd gone fishing by the river noticed the box situated about three feet from the banks of the river. I don't know if the fisherman smelled something emanating from the box or if he found the coffin shape of the thing to be unsettling. Whatever it was, he was compelled enough to call the local police. When investigators arrived at the scene, it was discovered that it contained the badly decomposed remains of an elderly man. You've probably figured out by now that this was indeed the gentleman Dorothea had been corresponding with while she was in prison, Everson Gilmuth. And sadly, it would be another three years before his remains would ever be identified. In the meantime, Dorothea kept up her room and board business at that Sacramento home she'd rented out rooms in, having taken in more than 40 tenants. All the while, she was still collecting Everson's retirement benefits, easily being able to deposit and cash those checks into that joint account she had opened up with him when they moved in together. She kept in contact with his family, writing them letters in order to keep them from becoming too suspicious of his absence. She would tell him that he was unable to contact his family because he was very sick. Dorothea was never at a shortage for tenants at her room and board business that she was running. Social workers in the area enjoyed working with her because she was always so willing to take in their toughest clients. The ones that struggled with drug addiction or those who had been deemed difficult and abusive as tenants. She accepted people others were unwilling to accept. And for that, their advocates were grateful for her generosity and her flexibility to work with them. And this was her scheme. She would intercept the mail of her tenants before they ever saw any of it. She would give them all a certain amount of money, like an allowance, and then she would keep the rest of it for herself and told them that they were for her expenses. Remember, Dorothea was on parole and she had been visited by her parole officers numerous times. And because of her past convictions of fraud and forgery, she had been ordered to keep away from working with elderly clients, and she was also not allowed to handle any type of government check. These visits to her home by her parole officers occurred no less than 15 times at her residence, but she was never cited for any of the violations at all, despite the fact that she was providing board and care for numerous elderly people and was cashing all of their government checks. And what was even better for Dorothea because she often took in addicts, 
those individuals would end up spending all of their allowance that she gave them at local bars. And this was something that they were not allowed to do while living in these boarding care facilities. So someone, presumably Dorothea, would call police and tip them off to them being at the bars and they would be jailed on probation violations for 30 days or more. And this would allow Dorothea an all-access pass to any money that was left over or any more money that would arrive while they were all locked up. Dorothea would continue on with her government check fraud for quite some time until finally, in November of 1988, an alert social worker noticed something was amiss. A developmentally disabled man who also struggled with schizophrenia named Alberto Montoya was reported missing by his social worker. Police went to the care facility where he was residing under the care of Dorothea to inquire about his wellness. They searched the home but really didn't find anything to be out of the ordinary. However, one of the tenants told investigators that there had been some recent excavating in the backyard. So they turned their attention to that area. They could see that the ground had indeed been recently disturbed. It didn't take much digging before they made a grisly discovery, a human leg bone with a partially decomposed foot. Dorothea, by this time 59 years old, and to police, somewhat of a slight grandmotherly type of woman, was not placed under arrest quite yet. She ran the home, but certainly this woman could not have possibly have anything to do with this, right? Well, despite her appearance and despite her demeanor, investigators could not help but suspect something was not quite right with her. So, when police returned the next day to search the property, they discovered that Dorothea had fled the area. And it didn't take long to figure out why they would go on to recover the remains of six more people in the backyard, a total of seven victims buried back there. Some appeared to be wrapped up like mummies, covered tightly with bed linens and secured with duct tape. One was even without a head, hands, or feet. Ranging in ages from 52 to 79, there were three men and four women discovered buried in the backyard of that boarding home. They had been sent to Dorothea's because, for them, this was the only place that would take them in. Those difficult-to-place clients like I had talked about earlier. All of them killed and buried in order to continue cashing their social security checks uninhibited. The media descended upon Sacramento as body after body was being discovered in this backyard. And the fact that Dorothea the grandmotherly lady who was on the run made the story even more fascinating. Neighbors stood by in complete shock and disbelief as to what was going on at Dorothea's house. She had seemed like such a sweet, unassuming lady who cared for the tenants and the neighbors. She was actually quite well regarded in the community for her willingness to want to help the homeless and those who struggled with addiction, and she became very respected and revered for her work even having her picture taken with two California governors, George Dick Majin and Jerry Brown. But Dorothea's time on the run was short-lived. It only took law enforcement four days to track her down at a Los Angeles area motel where she was holed up. She was arrested and charged with seven counts of murder 
for those who had been found buried in the backyard. She was also later connected to two other murders, bringing the total number of murder charges to nine. Her alleged victims were 80-year-old Leona Carpenter, 65-year-old Dorothy Miller, 52-year-old Alvaro Montoya, 55-year-old Benjamin Fink, 62-year-old James Gallup, 64-year-old Vera Martin, 80-year-old Betty Palmer, 61-year-old Ruth Monroe, and of course, the man she had met while she was serving that five-year prison sentence, Everson Gilmuth, the one that she had commissioned her handyman to build that coffin for. At the age of 64, Dorothea stood trial in March of 1993, and she was facing the death penalty. Because of all the pretrial publicity, her trial was moved 200 miles south out of the Sacramento area to the city of Monterey. Her defense team acknowledged that Dorothea had indeed buried her tenants in the backyard, but claimed that she did so only after they'd passed away from natural causes or they committed suicide. Her defense also acknowledged the fact that their client did keep cashing the disability checks of the deceased, but tried to claim that she was authorized to do so because she was their landlord. I'm sorry, but I'm pretty sure that once somebody is dead, the Social Security Administration is supposed to be alerted to their deaths immediately, and all benefits for that person are stopped. According to her attorneys, yes, she's a thief. She was taking money that she shouldn't have been taking, but this did not a murderer make. What made the case for murder so much more difficult was the fact that forensic pathologists were unable to determine the cause of death for any of the people Dorothea was charged with killing. And if you can't determine cause of death, it's difficult to make a case for murder. But the prosecutor pointed out to the circumstances of the case against her. And we have talked about this in the past, and from my own experience going to jury duty, the prosecutor makes it very clear that circumstantial evidence is just as compelling and valuable as forensic evidence. And some of the circumstances included Dorothea's criminal past history, which he reminded the jury included a 1982 conviction of drugging the drinks of at least three elderly victims whom she turned around and robbed while they were drugged. And even though prosecutors could not prove exactly how she did it, they could come to the conclusion that based on how the victims were wrapped up in sheets and duct tape, that this was a deliberate act of murder and an attempt to cover up what she had done. Dorothea did not take the stand in her own defense. And in the end, she was only convicted of first-degree murder on two of the charges and second-degree murder on a third charge. The jury remained deadlocked on the other six charges of murder, so the judge declared a mistrial on all those counts. They were deadlocked 11 to 1 for conviction on all counts, until the lone holdout finally agreed to those three convictions. What's interesting is the jury took 24 days to deliberate their decision, which isn't the longest trial deliberation ever, but it is the longest for a murder trial in California. Incidentally, the longest jury deliberations in the history of the United States for a civil trial was four and a half months in 1992 in California, and a criminal trial 
four months in 2003, again in California. During the trial, the prosecutor described Dorothea's victims as shadow people, which I find to be quite an ominous description of those individuals that died while living in her boarding facility. Shadow people, as the prosecutor put it, were those who are generally marginalized, homeless, who don't have much contact with family or friends, who would not notice if they were missing. Luckily, a social worker became concerned when one of their clients had not been heard from in quite some time and alerted authorities. But if you ask me, there should have been much more attention paid to those individuals to make sure that they were being cared for properly. My family takes care of one of my aunts who suffers from schizophrenia. She has to be taken to see her psychologist every three months, as well as her primary care doctor every six months or as needed. If she were to fail to show up, her social security benefits would be terminated. So for Dorothea to have been able to get away with stealing those government benefit checks was definitely a failure on the social services system for not keeping tabs on those individuals receiving benefits. This case did raise concerns about the conditions elderly people are having to live in, as the boarding facility Dorothea was operating was not licensed as a care facility, and it did not fit the standards of one in the state of California, a huge oversight on the part of the California Department of Social Services. And in the years since the Dorothea Puente case, there have been many laws enacted to help regulate those types of facilities, such as the one she was running, that are licensed by the state. As I said, Dorothea was facing the possibility of the death penalty, and the prosecution was going all out to make sure that that sentence was going to be handed down. The strategy was to shine a bright light on her prior convictions. That her crimes had escalated over the years until the point she became a serial killer. The defense brought witnesses in to testify that Dorothea was a very kind and caring person. They even managed to find one of her daughters whom she had given up to come in and somehow explain that she had played a role in her upbringing and helped her achieve success in life. Experts testified that Dorothea's abusive childhood and how those early life experiences moved her towards wanting to give back to the community and help those who were most in need. But all of the stress in this line of work was too much for her to handle, which is why she did what she did. Seeing all of the hard times her tenants were going through was somehow too much for her to cope with. The prosecutor said to the jury, quite loudly, does anyone become responsible for their conduct in this world? These people were human beings and they had the right to live. They did not have a lot of possessions, no houses, no cars, only their social security checks and their lives and she took it all. Death is the only appropriate penalty. Her attorney, however, spoke more gently to the jury during the penalty phase, stating, we are here to determine one thing. What is the value of Dorothea Puente's life? That is the question. Does she have to be killed? You've heard of the despair which was the foundation of her life, the anger and resentment. If anyone in the jury room tells you it was not that bad, ask them, would you want that to happen to yourself? Would you want that to happen to your children? I'm led to believe that if there is any reason for us to be living here on this earth, it is to somehow enhance one another's humanity, to love, 
to touch each other with kindness, to know that you have made just one person breathe easier because you have lived. I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, that is why these people came to testify for Jethia Puente. I think you can only truly understand why so many people have testified and asked you to spare Dorothea's life. Only if you've ever fallen down and stumbled on the road of life and had someone pick you up and give you comfort, give you love, show you the way, then you will understand why these people believe Dorothea's life is worth saving. That is mitigating. That is a human quality that deserves to be preserved. It is a flame of humanity that has burned inside Dorothea since she was young. That is the reason to give Dorothea Puente life without the possibility of parole. And that is what ended up happening. Dorothea was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. One juror had even made the comment that it would be like sentencing your grandma to death. And on March 27, 2011, after serving 18 years in prison, Dorothea Puente died at the age of 82 of natural causes. She maintained her innocence until her dying day, insisting everyone buried in her yard died of natural causes too. Thank you so much for joining me for this bonus episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of Dorothea Puente. And until next time, sweet dreams.